The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, good morning, Heritage. That was weak. Good morning, Heritage. Thank you. You guys know how to get, you know how to do it down here in Southern Oregon. Uh, my name, as, uh, as Brent mentioned, is Brian Fowler. And uh, uh, been in the Rogue Valley a lot of years of my life. Uh, the last five years, though, my family and I moved 3,000 miles across the United States to pastor a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, uh, uh, but now we're back in the West Coast. And uh, as Brent mentioned, I am one of the pastors at a church in Portland called Westside of Jesus Church. And part of my job there is to oversee a network of churches. So there's about four churches in Southern Oregon that were networked with 15 churches kind of across the nation. So pretty exciting stuff, but I'm super glad to get to see some people that I haven't seen in a ton of time and, uh, and then meet some new friends and also just open the scriptures. Um, so are you guys ready to get into the book of Acts? That's the series you're in? All right, so we're in Acts chapter 13. Um, if you've been tracking... Um, and, and my assignment is the entire chapter, uh, which is 52 verses in 40 minutes. But so I, when I found out that that was my assignment, I had to go look on the website and see how Jeremy does it. Um, and he's been preaching for about an hour. So um, I'm going to try to stick to 40 minutes. But if I don't, look, the guy who's leading right now is setting the pace. So um, <laughs> Acts chapter 13, when you're there, just say, I got it. And if you're not there yet, say, I am getting it. All right, a few of you are getting it. Um, Let me pray and then we'll just get into the scriptures this morning. Father, just thank you for being able to worship together as a church community and open up the Bible as an act of worship. We sing to you and praise and prayer, but now we lift up kind of our minds to you and offer them as an act of worship as we study the Bible together. So we know that the prophet said that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So we pray that the enduring nature of Scripture would really rest upon our hearts and and activate in our lives. And so we pray, even through this enormous narrative that we're going to be looking at, that you would really speak to us in profound ways. In Jesus' name, we all said together, Amen, amen. So as we're, we're on this journey through the book of Acts, um, you know that perhaps chapter 13 is one of the more pivotal pieces of the story. There's a, there's a huge transition about to happen as the church is really beginning to catch in that part of the world during this time. And so as we kind of look at this chapter, um, you, you'll note that the church is growing like wildfire. Like there's just this massive movement and the church is just multiplying and growing and increasing. And uh, speaking of wildfire, I don't know if you guys have been following the, the wildfires in Australia that are just devastating. I was doing a little bit of reading about these wildfires and they're, they're reporting flames, some as high as like 230 feet high, temperatures at like 1,000 degrees, which that's like lava coming out. Um, and, and one of the things, you know, they're reporting that during this last fire season, Australia has seen 46 million acres of land just devastated through these fires. Um, but there's, there's something interesting about the way a wildfire works in the atmosphere because when a fire gets to a certain temperature and, and, and size, it actually begins to change the atmosphere and create its own weather pattern. Um, and so there's like thunderstorms and lightning, which then causes more little wildfires, um, which is devastating for Australia. We need to pray for them. But I was thinking of a wildfire as an illustration of what the gospel is doing in the first century 
in this place in the Mideast. And really, we're seeing, as you read the book of Acts, the story of Jesus move from a, a little home prayer meeting to just expanding as Jesus said it would. You remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one of the things Jesus said was going to happen. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem where you started, then to Judea, the outer regions, then Samaria where you didn't used to go, and then he says, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so chapter 13 is the beginning of the uttermost parts of the earth story. And the movement of Christianity has continued to move forward uh, with steady massive, incredible wildfire type of growth. Actually, um, statistically, we know that by uh, 8350, 51% of the Roman Empire was Christian. 51% of the known world was following the way of Jesus. And the movement has continued to increase. It's reported that by 2025, the guess is that there will be um, 633 million Christians in Africa alone. That's not counting what God is doing in Asia and South America. So if you're frustrated with Christianity in America or in Europe, just know that God is moving across the land, across His world, right? He's always moving. Yeah, yeah that's good. You can clap for that. You know, I, I preached in the South, yo. They said, y'all, when, when we talked, you know, they, they, they say, a man, they clapped, you know, so um, you can get into it. Um, but as we look at this, just, just remember the fact that this is the ex- exciting movement of the Christian story. Um, So are we ready to go? Verse 1, chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas. Now his name used to be Joseph, or he was called Joseph, but his name was changed to Barnabas, which means, anybody know? Son of encouragement, right? So he's a great guy to have on your team. Then this guy named Simeon called Niger, and Niger means black. He was a black man from Africa. And then Lucius of Cyrene, another area of Africa. And then this dude named Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So it's a pretty diverse leadership team here at the church at Antioch. Um, two men from Africa, two Jewish men, and then this guy Menaean, who was raised in the royal household and was connected with Herod the Tetrarch. Not a really good dude, but... Um, verse 2, while they were worshiping, and this is significant, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I love this group of leaders. They came together for the purpose of just, I think the King James Version says, to minister to the Lord. And as they were ministering to the Lord in that environment, these five leaders, uh, racially diverse, perspectively diverse, leading the church forward together, as they were just taking time to minister to the Lord and fast, the Holy Spirit spoke. You know, you know, pray for your elders during this time as they are ministering to the Lord, that they would sometimes be able to put church business aside and just say, Jesus, we're just here for you. Because as they ministered to the Lord, they weren't even praying about the church. They were just like, God, you are good. We lift up your name. As they were focused vertically, the Holy Spirit said, I've got something to do in the world. And the Holy Spirit said, separate these two men, Barnabas and Saul, for the work I've called them to. And, and then after hearing the word of the Lord, they just lay their hands on these guys and they send them out. Now this is the signs of a healthy church. They were, first of all, a praying church. 
They were second of all a spirit-led church. The church has always been led by the Holy Spirit, not by CEOs and strategists, but by the strategy of God's Holy Spirit working upon his spirit-filled people, men and women waiting upon the Lord and the Lord speaking. So they were a church that worshiped the Lord, that ministered to the Lord. They were a praying church. They were a spirit-led church and they were a sending church. The signs of the health in the church are when the movement of the gospel continues forward and we send men and women out to do the work of the Lord. And so Paul and Barnabas get sent out. And this moment recorded in chapter 13 and 14 is what we know as Paul's first missionary journey. He takes about what most say are three, maybe four missionary journeys uh, reaching the known world with the gospel of Jesus. But it's as he's sent out on his first missionary journey that things start to get really weird. So this story gets really twisty and weird. Um, And just as we think about the opposition that Paul and Barnabas are about to face on their first journey, um, I wanted to read something that Spurgeon said about obstacles and opposition in life. I thought this was uh, helpful. Spurgeon writes, Wherever there is likely to be great success, the open door and the opposing adversaries will both be found. Notice that. The open door and the opposition are both found when God is about to move. And then he writes this, if there are no adversaries, you may fear that there will not be success. And then he goes on to write, it's not in the quote, but a boy cannot get his kite up without wind or keep his kite up without wind to drive it. So rather than fearing opposition, we ought to consider opposition like wind in the kite, wind in the sails to propel us forward into what God is doing. Amen, church? So when opposition comes your way, it may very well be a sign that God is moving in your life upon your church. Opposition is, in some cases, a sign of the movement of God. We expect the opposition of our adversary, the devil, whenever we're doing something that counts, right? So as they begin, they launch out. There's this moment where, this is where your Bible maps come in handy. So, you know, if you ever wondered, like, why are these maps here for, for passages like this one? So note what goes on. So they head out, Paul and Barnabas, sent by the church at Antioch. The two of them, verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And I like that. It was the Holy Spirit that sent them through the church. They went down to Seleucia, and you can see it's right there by the, that's the Mediterranean Sea. And they arrived after setting sail at Salamis, and they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. Now you might note, this John was none other than John Mark, who was Barnabas' nephew. And he's the author of the Gospel of Mark, this John Mark. So he's joined Barnabas and Saul on this trip. They traveled through the whole island of Cyprus until they came, verse 6, to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer, and this is where it gets twisty, and and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But I like verse 8. Luke, you know, who wrote the book of Acts, his name, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, it's almost like Luke can't stand to even call him a son of Jesus. So he says, well, verse 8, his name's Elimus. He's a sorcerer. Opposed them, he opposes Paul and Barnabas, and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. So here's where Saul's name starts to get transferred for the first time. He's going to start going by Paul. So we know him as Paul the Apostle. He was originally his Jewish name, Saul. And Saul in the Hebrew 
means requested one, like big daddy, like, you know, just a big deal, right? His name is requested one, and then he changes his name, or he's also called Paul, which means little. So you think God's doing a little humbling in this man's life, right? So Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus, as you do, and said, you are a child of the devil. Real politically correct, right? Um, and an enemy of everything that is right, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So Saul and Barnabas get on a boat and sail to Cyprus. This is where their journey starts. And Cyprus, according to Acts chapter 4, is where Barnabas was originally from. It's his hometown. So he goes back to his hometown, sails from Seleucia, and they start in Salamis. And they preach the gospel at the synagogue there in that town. And they, cr- they cross the island of Cyprus over to the other side to Paphos. And when they get to Paphos, this, this weird magician sorcerer dude shows up who's named Bar-Jesus, or called Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, also Eliamus. And, and for those of you, uh, Lord of the Rings, anybody? Lord of the Rings fans, J.R. Tolkien, uh, Two Towers, right? This is Two Towers. This is, Gre- this is Grima Wormtongue, right? This is Grima Wormtongue seducing the king of Rohan until Gandalf just comes in and, like, casts the spell off, right? So this is that story from Lord of the Rings-ish, if you would. And so Saul and Barnabas are coming, and Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the governor uh, of the region, he's interested in hearing more about the gospel of Jesus, but this Grima worm tongue, this Bar Jesus, this Elimus guy, is, is deceiving him and polluting his mind. And, and so Paul, as you do, right, just pronounces blindness on the guy. And uh, Paul knew a little bit about going blind because his conversion story had to do with blindness, right? And, and it was being blind that he might see. And so, so Saul does this uh, incredible miracle and really pronounces blindness over this sorcerer guy. Um, and it's because of that that Sergius Paulus is converted. So the, one of the craziest parts of the story to me, look back down at verse 12. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is just one of those things that I think, really? When the proconsul saw what had happened, you know the whole striking his assistant blind thing? He believed. I mean, wouldn't you? But it says he was amazed. Now, I'd have been amazed at the whole Paul striking people blind trick. I'd be like, Paul, wait, like, come here. Like, how did you do that? But it says that he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So it was the teaching about Jesus, the way of Jesus, that got Sergius Paulus to be amazed and actually changed his heart and mind. You know, there's power in the proclamation of the truth about the Lord. Amen, church? And it was that that, that actually had Sergius Paulus interested. I would have been interested in the magic trick of striking the guy blind, but it was actually the teaching about the Lord that changed the heart of Sergius Paulus. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. I'm wondering if this wasn't what inspired the Apostle Paul to later write in Romans 6, chapter 1, verse 16, excuse me, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Just release the gospel of Jesus, the, the, the word about the Lord, as it said here in Acts chapter 13, verse 12, and it has power to save. When I was uh, first starting out, sort of cutting my teeth in ministry, when I was uh, 
wise 19-year-old um, put in charge of 200 high school kids as their high school youth pastor at our church. Um, one, of, one of the first experiences I had was we had this young lady in our uh, youth group who was really a delightful, kind of bubbly, fun-loving girl. And as happens, she got in this relationship with this guy and her disposition just got really dark and she just was changed. Like she, this relationship was changing her dramatically and her parents got a hold of us and we're like, we're just really concerned about our daughter. And so me and one of the other youth pastors, we just set up a meeting with this dude and our favorite youth group girl. And uh, we're like, like, look, like we feel jealous love, like big brother time over this girl's life. And so we meet with this guy and, and he's older. So he's like out of high school. She's like 16. He's like 18 or whatever. Uh, and, and he was like this, uh, maybe you know the type, he was like this snarky, you know, too big for his britches, kind of like pseudo-intellectual future, future cult leader of America kind of guy, spiritual guru kind of guy, and, uh, you know, real articulate and well-read and super anti-Christian. And so, um, you know, we're chatting with him and talking about Jesus and spiritual reality, and, and he's having none of it. And we're, we're kind of actually not gaining much ground with him. We feel like he's actually, um, you know, working us over. And so at one point we're like, well, we're just going to start reading the Bible. And so it was funny because we, you know, back in the day I used to just, my Bible was with me all the time. It was, it was like that spiritual ninjas do that. You just stick your Bible with you. So I had my Bible with me. And so I pull it, I put it on the table and this dude, I'm not kidding. He has a visceral reaction to the Bible, just a physical Bible. And then I, we open it and we start like pointing to passages and having them read them. And this very well-read, articulate guy like starts stumbling over his words. He can barely read. It's like he's back in kindergarten. And uh, then a light shined off the page and struck him blind. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> but just, just the, the pure scripture. So we, we were having like read Romans 10, 9, you know, if you believe in your heart, confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. And... And though he didn't become a convert, it like it broke the spell on this girl. And then she broke off the relationship and she went forward. And I think from that day forward, I, it was kind of marked in my mind that there's just power in the sheer word of God. The scriptures themselves, the truth of the scriptures. Because here I was trying to wax intellectual with this guy and I wasn't getting anywhere. Then I just opened my Bible, turned to a passage and said, read this, bro. And we won, right? <laughs> Amen. So that's what's going on with Paul and Barnabas. Pretty cool. Now, verse 13, you back, back to the maps. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. So now they sail off Cyprus, back onto into Asia Minor. They're going to head up into the region of Galatia. And it was at this point, verse 13, that John, which we mentioned before, was John Mark. He left them and returned to Jerusalem. So the young John Mark bailed on the mission, left, went back to mommy in Jerusalem, from Perga, verse 14, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now, you might note that oftentimes when Paul was going into a new territory, he would start at the synagogue because the synagogue 
had this practice wherein if there was a visiting rabbi of some clout, and it's likely that Paul maybe somehow even his physical attire showed that he was a rabbi, well-trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a very learned man. Um, He walks in and there was a custom among local synagogues that if a rabbi teacher was in the room, a man of note, you would invite him to speak. And so Paul knew that he was going to get the mic anywhere he went because of his previous life as a Pharisee. So one of his strategies for reaching a new community was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so he gets the mic handed to him, and he's about ready to preach his first sermon. Now I have to confess something. Um, I wanted to know how long Paul's first sermon was, because I knew how much time I had. Um, And it takes about three minutes to read his sermon out loud. And he covers like like a thousand years of Jewish history and goes to Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection and converts a bunch of people in three minutes. And I can't even do it in 40. I feel a little ashamed of myself. But uh, let's just read Paul's sermon. So you kind of catch the scene. He gets handed the mic and he's now in front of this audience of Jewish men and women and also the Galatian believers. And in three minutes, he brings it, right? Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. So he starts at the Exodus. And with mighty power, he led them out of that country after 430 years. 4 verse 18, about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan. So now this is the time of Joshua where they enter into the land. They overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them to that time of the judges, where we have the book of Judges, until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, didn't work out too well, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for about 40 Verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now catch this, he puts the clutch in. So he's just been rattling off well-known Jewish history from the time of the Exodus to the rise of their favorite king, David. From this man's descendants, verse 23, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Now you've got a synagogue full of Orthodox Jews. And so Paul stands up. It's his chance to address the audience. And as he's addressing them, he starts recounting a history they would know very well. So, I mean, I could just imagine sort of like people dozing off. Yeah, I've been preaching for a few years and I've put lots of people to sleep in my time. Um, But I almost imagine as he's recounting the history of Israel, suddenly he gets to this point and he's like, and from David came our Messiah whom God sent. And it's at that moment you almost imagine everybody waking up. It's like when I preach a sermon and I can see everyone sleeping. I know there are two things that will wake everybody up. I can start talking politics or sex, which I try not to do a lot of that. Sometimes I just act like I'm going to to wake everybody up. Just say the word sex, everyone wakes up. Say the word, you know, impeachment, everyone wakes up, right? Um... And, and it was almost like there's this moment where Paul is, is talking about familiar, 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 and all of a sudden he says, and Jesus is the Messiah. God sent him. Now this was equal opportunity offense. It stepped on the left and the right at the same time. For the Jewish religious system to say that your Messiah has already come and you missed it would be very offensive. To the Roman Empire, Jesus as Lord is offensive. So Paul just stepping right into the fray and saying, from Old Testament... 
Moses, Joshua, time of the judges, Samuel, then Saul the king, and then David comes, Jesus. That, that's got everyone's attention. And then he pushes even further. Because then he begins to talk about the story of Jesus, the gospel as we call the gospel. Um, verse 16. No, I'm not going backward. Verse 24. You're like, no. Verse 24. Before the coming of Jesus, then he, t- he starts talking about John the Baptist. John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And one thing to note about John the Baptist is his ministry was ever pointing to Christ. Always pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. And Paul's beginning of the, the, the preaching about the life and times of Jesus Messiah, he says, first of all, there was this forerunner named John the Baptist. He was the skippy, the hippie, you know, locusts and camels from Portland, you know, uh, eating vegan and stuff. Um, he says he, the forerunner for Messiah, was, was immediately saying, attention off of me. I am not the one you're looking for. I preach him, and I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal. That's John the Baptist's ministry. That's the ministry of God's church. We are the John the Baptist of this generation. We are not the Christ. We point to the Christ. And John's saying, attention off me. There was this moment in John the Baptist's ministry, sort of this epic moment where John's followers come to him and they're like, hey, John, did you know a lot of your followers are leaving you to follow Jesus? That, like, that's a bad thing. And John's like, in that my joy is fulfilled. That's why I came. The whole time I've been here, I've been like, follow that man, Jesus. And now his disciples are going, well, everyone's leaving you to follow Jesus. He goes, that's what I came for. That's where the church exists. We are a prophetic pointer to Jesus the Messiah, just as John was. And so Paul brings up the forerunner. Then he goes, verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. You want to note something about this sermon is Paul's use of the Old Testament to point to Jesus. Before there was a New Testament, the Bible still spoke about Jesus. The Old Testament is full of prophetic signposts to Jesus. So the people of Jerusalem, their rulers, verse 27, didn't recognize him. Verse 28, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They killed an innocent man. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And Paul would later tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus, alive and walking, resurrected, was seen by 500 witnesses. And so it's almost as if he's laying his apologetic for the proof of the resurrection. 500 witnesses saw him. They're with us to this day. Now, we tell you the good news, verse 32, what God promised to our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it was also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, 
he fell asleep. So if you thought these psalms were about David, Paul's saying they're not about David. They're about the greater than David, Jesus. When David fell asleep, he died. He, he did see decay. He was buried with his ancestors, body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Amen? Just that verse alone. We can stop right there, pack it up, and go home. But notice that Paul uses Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10, to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection. And just again, to point out the obvious, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus from beginning to end. And there's this crucial moment, though, in this three-minute sermon that Paul's preaching, which I'm already over three minutes if you didn't know that, um, where he, he begins to talk about the implications of what it means that Jesus came, was crucified, buried, and rose again, and lives to this day. What are the implications of this? And so here's where Paul takes this. This is why this is important. This is how the truth of Jesus comes to bear on our lives. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, now notice this, if you're a Bible underliner, you might underline this if it's not already, through Jesus, what is accomplished? The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now, why is the news of Jesus so important? Why is the story of Jesus something that we as followers of Jesus retell? Why, why is this more than just an ancient retelling of a historical event that's sort of interesting and for some seems almost irrelevant? Well, it has to do with what Paul says here. That it is because of Jesus that you can receive the forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin. This is what Jesus accomplishes. And that he notice, he says, the implications are you receive a, a justification, a right standing with God that you could not have accomplished if it had not been for Jesus Christ. You have a standing with God that you could not have accomplished without a relationship with Jesus Christ who came was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and lives today. Without that, there would be no forgiveness of sin. There would be no freedom from sin. You know, what Jesus' blood accomplished isn't only forgiveness, but freedom. That you don't have to be enslaved anymore. Isn't that good? We don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. God gave us his law, but his law is like a level that you put on a wall that tells you that the wall's out of whack, that it's crooked. You know, you put a level on a wall and you find out the wall's crooked. You know, the level isn't the tool that fixes crooked walls. For those of you who aren't construction minded, just FYI. You don't use a level to correct a crooked wall. The, the level will only ever tell you this wall is crooked, this wall is crooked, this wall is crooked. To have a relationship with God based on the law, things will never get right. Because all the law is going to do, and the law of God is perfect, but it just keeps telling you you're wiggity whacked, you're crooked. Something's not right here. And you'll continue to live that way. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to make you right. I am the one who makes crooked things straight. I'm the one who, who, who implements righteousness into your life. I mean, any of you here ever 
doing something illegal while you're driving? I know in church, probably everybody, like, no, I don't ever text and drive or mess with my phone or run through yellow lights or speed in Jacksonville or break the law. You, you know, for, for some of you really bad people in here who sometimes break the law while you drive, you don't have your seatbelt on or whatever, um, how do you feel when you see a police officer? Do you feel like comforted and like grateful? I'm so glad you're here protecting our community and, you know, watching out for us. No, you feel fear and anxiety. And, and one of the first questions you, you think is, I wonder if he saw that. I wonder if he saw that, right? And a lot of people's relationship with God is that God is the policeman ready to bust you. He's watching and he's going to bust me. But if your relationship with God is that way, you've got, you've got a God holding the law, not a crucified Jesus, resurrected, victorious, that if you would put your trust in him, the implications are he's not come to bust you, he's come to bust you out. He's not come to ticket you, he's come to pay your ticket. He's come to release you and rescue you. And so our relationship with Jesus isn't a relationship of he's judging me, but rather he has come to save me from judgment. Amen? Isn't that good news? That is the good news. Some of you are like, well, we're at church and we already know this good news. Hear it again. Like, preach it to yourself. Like, you have to remind yourself that God is not trying to bust me. He's come to save me and love me. And those are the implications. So Paul says there are implications for those who put their trust in Jesus and there are implications for those who do not. And notice he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. If you put your trust in Jesus, forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin and a justification you could have not accomplished on your own. But should you not push your trust in Jesus, there are also implications for that. And he quotes from an interesting place in Scripture, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. This is a warning to the nation of Judah that judgment is coming. Babylon will come if you don't turn. Babylon will come and they're going to sack the city of Jerusalem. They're going to burn down your temple and knock down your walls. They're going to enslave you for 70 years. This is not going to go well for you if you don't heed this warning. And it's Paul chooses to quote that in the synagogue to Jewish men and women to say, listen, the implications for accepting God's Messiah are forgiveness and freedom. The implications for not is something bad is coming. Judah didn't listen. They would know from that day, like, you remember what happened in the ancient story to our people when they didn't listen to God's warning. Paul's saying that same warning I give to you. There are implications when it comes to Jesus. So we can't just talk about Jesus and just be like, oh, I like Jesus. He was a cool dude. He did social justice work and drank herbal tea, I'm sure, and walked around in a robe. It was really cool with the peace sign all the time. No, like, Jesus, his presence, his message, it has implications and this kind of hard preaching, where Paul says there's consequences, it actually had great results. Notice, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, so I bet he just dropped the mic, you know. The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. I mean, that's always good if you get invited back, you know, like, we want to hear more. We wish your sermon was only 40 minutes. I wish it was two hours, right, as you guys are all saying right now. Um, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
On the next Sabbath, now notice this, this is great. This is what you want. The whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, this is really catching on. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. So, so this is, at, at, at first glance, great results. The, it's citywide revival. There's an awakening happening in the city. The entire city comes out to hear the good news about Jesus. But it is a bitter, sweet moment for Paul because some are receiving life and some are receiving death. In the same moment, the same truth that, that freed some actually soured and embittered others. The Jews came against Jesus and the message of Paul. Notice Paul in, in one place, probably after ministering in, in several contexts over several years, said in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So if, if you live like Jesus, you live the way of Jesus, you're going to have the aroma of Jesus to the saved and the, to the perishing. To one... You are a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul is saying his message, our message, our, the truth about Jesus is life to some and death to others. It smells like death to some. It smells like life to others. And so that's a bittersweet truth about the announcement of a great... I mean, when I come to give good news, I expect everybody to be happy about it. But the truth about Jesus is not everyone's happy about this news. But Paul has seen God move in spite of all that. And so in this, we're going to see Paul begins to experience the first whiff of persecution upon his ministry in life. Later, you'll read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul would be beaten with rods and stoned with rocks, not marijuana, um, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, starved, sunburnt in the heat, in the cold, in hunger, and in thirst, and eventually he'll have his life taken at the hands of Caesar Nero. His head be taken off for the gospel of Jesus. But Paul's first missionary journey, his first sermon, the, the, the first waves of persecution are beginning to rise now. Verse 45, and we'll finish here. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Now, I want you to notice something. We don't have time for this, but I'm going to take time just a little bit for this. This is, this is free. Um, verse 46. He, Paul's answer to those who were rejecting him. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, now notice, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. So Paul holds them morally culpable for deciding whether or not they're going to follow the way of Jesus that has just been announced. Now, he then goes on to say, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the Gentiles heard this, verse 48. They were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And now notice Luke adds this. It's almost like Paul and Luke are having this debate in the narrative, right? Paul said humans are morally culpable for their own deciding whether or not they're going to follow Jesus. Then Luke says, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. He's saying, you know, election, free will. And the answer to which one is true is yes. Does, does, is man morally culpable for whether or not he decides to follow the way of Jesus? Yes. Does God elect people and appoint them to receive salvation? Yes. Smart Luther called this the theologian's cross. He said there's just some theological things that you cannot solve. So we don't solve it, we just go, it's true. 
And that's what we see, kind of an interesting side note um, for those of you who like soteriology. Um, Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And we got 52 verses done. Ha! I'm not done yet, though. <laughs> There's a lot to say. I mean, I had so many things I wanted to say, but I just want to boil them down to this and really center in on how we handle the kind of rejection of the message of Jesus, but also just rejection in life that we sometimes experience. You know, for, for a lot of years in my life, trying to follow the way of Jesus, I believed that if I did the right thing, I would get the right results every time. Like, like I thought life was an equation. If I do this plus this, it equals things just should go well for me. How many of you have lived long enough to know that that's not true? Hey, so, so you have all been in that place where you did the right thing for once, or you did what you thought you were supposed to do on behalf of that loved one or that relationship or you know, in whatever endeavor that you were you know, setting out to do, and you did what you thought was right and it didn't go well. Maybe you're living in that space right now Maybe a relationship is out of whack with one of your kids and you feel like, I've extended myself and expended the energy and tried to forgive and love and give and love and yet they're still wayward. Or maybe it's in a marriage where you keep trying but it, things just aren't getting better and you feel like, I'm doing the right thing but I'm not getting the right results. Or maybe your marriage ended. Or maybe it's a personal sickness. You're wondering why as you follow the way of Jesus and try to live in His way that you're still sick or someone that you love is sick. Or whatever, fill in the scenario, but it's that moment where we feel rejection or like life isn't working out the way I thought it was supposed to. For Paul and Barnabas, this was a direct hit in the sense that they went in obeying what Jesus has asked them to do. The Spirit said, go. And the the, the message they brought was true. And yet not everybody loved it. Not everybody loved them. They got driven out of the city and it's only going to get worse for Paul. So how do we handle this kind of rejection? And I just want to throw two things past you, and then we'll be done and enter into a time of worship together. But two takeaways from what to do about rejection. Number one, focus on the wins and mourn the losses. Notice verse 46. We spoke the word of God to you. You rejected it. And now we're going to the Gentiles. In verse 48, the Gentiles were stoked. And as we follow the way of Jesus, there are times when we cannot hyper-focus on how the things that aren't going well, because life is a mixed bag. It's not all rainbows and sunshine, but it's also not dark and horrible in every degree either. And we all have, I would say, I, I talk about these mental lists that we have constructed in our mind. At any moment, we've got a list of the things that aren't going like we wanted them to. Anybody here have a list of things in your life that aren't going the way you want them to? Just so I know I'm not alone. Okay, but we also have this other list of things that God is doing that are good in our life. And, and if we would sit down and take opportunity for gratitude, we would realize that in the midst of the things that aren't going the way we wanted them to, there are also a list of things that, where we can see the hand and goodness of God in our life. And we make decisions every day on what list we're going to live off of. And these mental neural pathways where we choose to hyper-focus on what's wrong And ignore the goodness of God in our life? I think the balance comes as uh, John Piper, 
he, he had this to say, and I thought it was really helpful as it concerns how we live in this tension of when things aren't always as we see them or we think they ought to be. Um, he says, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped you would, that, that you hoped would be. Grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. It's a Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 life. Weeping endures for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Eugene Peterson translated this in the message. I love this. He said, Psalm 30, verse 5, The nights of crying your eyes out give way to days of laughter. So this is, that's the truth about the tension of life that we live in. It's not all easy and it's not all bad. And sometimes we have to mourn our losses, but we can't hyper-focus on them. Weeping endures for the night. Joy comes in the morning. And then, secondly, on, on overcoming or moving beyond the things, the night seasons of life, the rejections of life. Finally, number two, shake it off and keep moving forward. Notice what Paul and Barnabas, they get kicked out of the city. They're experiencing rejection from, from uh, Pisdin, Antioch. And verse 51, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them. And they went to Iconium. And Taylor Swift wrote a song about this called Shake It Off. In the ancient world, if a Jew would go into a, a city, a Gentile city, as they were departing that Gentile city, once they got across the border of that Gentile city, they would wipe the dust from that city off of them as if to say to that city, we don't want to carry anything from this city forward with us. So Paul does that, but he inverts it. He doesn't do that to the Gentiles. He does that to the Jews. He and Barnabas wipe the dust off and as if to say, we don't want to carry any of your Christ-rejecting religiosity with us. We've got to move forward into the work of God for our life. And they just shake it off and move forward to the next city to proclaim the name of Jesus there. They shake it off and they keep moving forward. And I just wonder um, who maybe here this morning just needs to hear this word from the Lord. It's time to move forward. To stop focusing and talking about and thinking incessantly about what's not, what didn't go right. Because it's a shrunken existence when we stay stuck in what's not going right. There's more that God has for us. We weep and we, we, we hope in the same moment. We grieve and we hope knowing that the story doesn't end in sorrow. Therefore, we move forward into the prophetic work of God that He has for our life. Amen? So for some of us here this morning, we just need to look at the results of moving forward and following the way of Jesus and living as the best we can, obedient followers of the way of Jesus. Notice it says, verse 52, that the disciples went their way filled with what? Joy and the Holy Spirit. And that's what my prayer would be for Heritage during this season of your church, that as you continue to move forward into the good things that God has ahead in the next chapter, in this next decade, for Heritage, 
for your life, for your family, for you personally, that you would simply be able to, as you go forward, then reap the benefits of being full of joy in the Holy Spirit. Anybody here want to be full of joy in the Holy Spirit? Anybody not want to be? Let's pray for you afterwards. Cast that demon out. Get Grima worm tongue off your back and believe in God. Let's stand together and pray. Take just a moment and if you're here and there are things that are in your life that are disappointing, a rejection, a hurt, maybe your list of things that did not go the way you wanted them to. Let's just present that to Jesus right now. And believe that He's God over the disappointments and rejections. But then, let's start thinking about in just this moment the good things that God has done in your life. The health that you have in your body. The relationships you have. The children, the grandchildren, the friendships. The house, the job, the things of grace in your life. Father, I pray as we all are thinking about good things and difficult things, and they they coexist together sometimes in this mixture of life. I pray for every brother and sister that's here this morning, those who know you and follow you, those who don't know you. We all have lived with the reality of there's some hurts, there's some pain, there's some past, but yet we move forward with hope, knowing that this is not a story that ends in sorrow with Jesus. So for that, God, we give you thanks. And we give you praise. And I ask now, God, for forward momentum. That we would be able to let things go and to move forward in the work that you have for us to do. So bless now this church, God. I pray these brothers and sisters that it would be said that this next season is a season where they walked full of the Holy Spirit and joy. And I pray for exceeding amounts of that that come from heaven as we walk forward with you. In Jesus' name. We all sit together. Amen. Amen. Let's